What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris. You might know me as Speech Dude. I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning, and I specialize in crafting neurodiversity-affirming IEPs through my online course. And I'm Jesse, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top rated clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Communication Programs for Parents and Therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity affirming ways to support social emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Making the Shift. Today is a very special day. We are so excited and so honored to have the one and only Dr. Winnie Dunn. Woo! (laughs) I think it's so funny because when I talk about you, I feel like I like have stars in my eyes when I talk about you to our team and things like that. And I'll let me tell the story of kind of how we met and yeah, then I'd yeah, love yeah. for you to tell everyone a little bit more about your work in case they're not that familiar, but which most people are, but I was, as many people know, had gotten this deep interest in sensory being an SLP and how sensory affected communication. And it was one of those things where you know, I did sensory integration training. I was trained in different sensory assessments. I had purchased your assessment, the sensory profile. And I just remember thinking, how cool would it be if I could have a conversation with Dr. Winnie Dunn? Like that would just be the coolest thing. And it was one of those things where I was so intimidated and scared, but I just started Googling you and I find some really (laughs) old website. It was probably, it was um, one of the schools that you had worked at, and it was some maybe like 10 year old website or more, and yeah. it had an email address. And I was like, you know what, what is the worst thing that can happen? You say, no, I won't talk to you. No, I'm not interested or whatever. So I emailed you and you wrote back, I don't know, quickly. I was like <laughs> shocked. And then we got to chat together as I was creating my program. And then later we came back and wrote an article together for ASHA, which we'll talk a little bit about today. And and, and it was the same experience when I asked you if you, you would be on the show. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? She's like, no. How many trials will it take for you to believe that I will respond? <laughs> <laughs> so I would love for you to just give every, I mean, you're, history is so impressive, but maybe some key things that, you know, people should know about your background and how you got to be where you are. Well, I think it's, I think it's really interesting, like looking back on my life compared to like when I was young, looking forward at people that were my age, you know, cause I always thought, oh, I'll never be like that, or I'll never want to do research or all those things that when you look forward, you can't believe. But um, when I look back, um, I noticed some things that are hallmarks of my life, which I didn't know at the time, but I see that they are every single, I have three, three college degrees and they, I was the first person in every one. You know, I was in the first graduating class in my OT program because back then occupational therapy was a bachelor's training. Um, 
I was in an experimental program, uh, special ed had just started. And so they were um, having special education um, master's degrees to help um, sort of seed special education in the public school. So I got a degree in learning disabilities. Uh, I, obviously I was the only not educator in there. Um, and then I, um, when I got my doctorate, um, I was an experimental student to show that people would be interested in a multidisciplinary neuroscience program. So uh, apparently I, I'm pretty interested in things that are starting and exploratory and experimental. Um, I took a job, you know, I, I took a job in public schools the first year that public law 94-142 was on the way to getting passed. And um, and so nobody knew what an occupational therapist was doing in a public school. We were supposed to be in hospitals and clinics and segregated settings. And um, and so, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've worked in the community. Um, I think you would see in my history that being in authentic places for families and children and, and adults is what I've always done. Um, the first time I ever worked with other OTs was when I was at the university, when I, um, I started at the university in, in 1980. Um, I'm now um, a distinguished professor at the University of Missouri and um, uh, mentoring, mostly mentoring the students and faculty there and working on projects. Um, we're working on an interoception scale um, for children and adults. We're working on, I'm working on a um, I'm calling it the groundbreaking neuroscience book because uh, some some of my co younger colleagues wanted to write a book about neuroscience and they um, they were formatting it the way all the other neuroscience books are formatted. And I'm like, we don't need any more of those. And so I'm really excited because every chapter starts with a story of a person and then the students have to have a discovery um, through activities that the authors create, um, discovery of what it means to have cerebral palsy or what it means to have schizophrenia or whatever it is. But the main event is the person and their life. And then the fact that there's a neuroscience feature to understanding them is like the sidebar, you know, they're learning about it, but we want them to keep the focus on these are people living a life and you're responsible for that part too, not just for their disease or their condition you know they're not a condition they're a human being so so that's what I'm doing it's pretty and exciting that seems like such a reflection of your work in general and for those of you who don't know you know you have done sensory processing framework which outlines the four sensation patterns which we've talked about I want to say episode 12 we actually go through your sensation pattern so if anyone hasn't listened to that you can go back and do that nice where we talk about those. We also did a later episode on how it was about after we went to Disneyland and how, because oh. our family has all the different sensation patterns. So how we all responded to being at Disneyland together per our sensation patterns. But um, I was going to say, it seems like that's such a reflection of your work, which is you have so much research and data to back everything up, but then everything is so applicable to everyday life. And your book, Living Sensationally, if you guys haven't read it, you should go out and get it. Life-changing, truly. <laughs> because yeah. I think that so many of us think about sensory as, oh, I need to learn sensory to help my clients, but we don't realize how much it actually is going to influence our day-to-day -day lives. 
Right. And even as a therapist or a teacher, you know, knowing what your own pattern is as a teacher helps you understand how you set up your classroom and, you know, which students are irritating to you that might not be irritating to somebody else. You know, when this, I'm always laughing every year at public school and teachers are passing the students on, you know, the third graders are going into fourth grade and, and um, they, they talk about the kids from their point of view, from their own sensory patterns. And then the next teacher will be like, you know, he's not like that at all for me. And it's because the child's behavior is interacting with how the teacher organizes the classroom or uses materials or, um, you know, what the sounds are, how the, how the whole place is organized, you know, different kids do better in different environments. So um, it's always, it's always fun to think about the humanity of it. You know, it's not just a science piece of information. It's about how human beings are navigating successfully or not. Right. Absolutely. I think that um, also that that historically you have that broad scope of, um, you know, you mentioned the degree and learning disabilities, which the holistic view of individuals that have a variety of differences with executive functioning, with social and emotional needs. And that kind of seems like it had paved the pathway to the big picture that has come to be Dr. Winnie Dunn. Right. And it's, isn't it so funny that when, when you're going forward, you're just like, well, that's the next thing I need to learn or right. person I need to learn from, or that's the next activity, you know, and all of a sudden it, you look back and there's a, there's a woven thread, you know, there's a, there's a reason why I'm the one that figured out to do the sensory profile because I had a degree in neuroscience. I had a degree in learning disabilities and I had a degree in OT. Like it took all those different points of view to come up with that idea and how to put it together in a way that other people could use, I think. And gosh, not to make you toot your own horn, but maybe you could kind of speak to how the sensory profile changed the way that people were starting to look at kids. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. I've, I've, I've started saying this to people because People sort of use the word seeking or avoiding or sensitivity or registration, which are the four patterns. They say them like they're regular words. And, you know, I, I was with the girl the day she figured out what those words meant. You know, we got all this data back on the first sensory profile. And I thought it was going to be, you know, when you do these analyses, you're always looking for patterns. So one of the ways you look for patterns is through factor analysis. And I thought, you know, all the auditory items would be together and all the visual items would be together. That made sense. You know, that was what we all thought and that's how we all acted. And here I come with this analysis and the the data shows like um, it comes up in these little columns and the first column is always the really strongest one. And so I was like, okay, what sense is it going to be, you know, and the, the top four items in that column were from four different sensory patterns. And I was like, like my, I couldn't, I was so upset. I closed the door in my office and I sat there and I, I even, cons- I've told this story before. I considered pretending I never did it because I didn't know what the heck I was going to say about this thing that wasn't what I expected. I did all the right things. I did it all properly. And then here I get this finding that, that was like ridiculous for the current knowledge. And, and, um, you know, it took me like weeks to figure out that the brain is processing based on the way the sensation's coming in, not what sensation it is. And, and then it made total sense. But 
before that moment, none of us understood that. And, and so when, when like, uh, when I did the second edition of the sensory profile, some of the items moved to a different location because it was 10, 15 years later and people see the world differently. And, and, um, I'm always, I always want to say to people, be, be respectful of what families tell us, you know, we can't hold on to our current ideas and keep hammering families and teachers with them when there's new evidence from them telling us that things are different. You know, like I could have ignored that and not, and kept letting everybody think that it was visual and auditory, but I was courageous enough to keep thinking about it. And now we talk about seeking and avoiding like it's everyday language. Well then, you know, when I did the school companion, which was for teachers, um, the teachers see things differently than parents and therapists. Duh. Like I had to get hit over the head with that one too. Um, so I had to sit and think like, what is a teacher looking at? Well, the teacher is always assessing the child's ability to learn, their, their availability to learn, their accessibility to learn, their, their willingness to be flexible for learning. Everything's about learning for the teacher. So of course, all the materials would be in a different pattern because the teacher's viewpoint is about learning. And that, that opened the door to another way to see sensation as it shows up in the educational environment. You know, it's like every time I want all of us to be courageous, to believe the truth that's before us, families tell us the truth. We have to we have to let that in and say, what does it mean? We have to be willing to figure out what it means for them and, and how we can help them navigate when we know it, instead of trying to always make what everybody says fit into what we already thought we knew. And um, I think that's the, been the most fun part is that I'm happy to see that I've been willing all along to find the new thing. To, and just, your and seeker brain is very happy with yeah. all of the evolving. <laughs> busted that's it right there (laughs) maybe we can just give like really brief outline of you know the components that dictate the patterns and and like we said we've talked about this before but maybe just like a quick explanation of how people can have a lower high threshold and passive or active regulation so there there's basically two constructs to to think about one comes from neuroscience and one comes from psychology and the neuroscience one is um, that your thresholds, the nervous system has thresholds and underneath those thresholds, you know, your brain doesn't have enough information and then it can get too much information. So there's a, there's a range of thresholds that we operate within. And um, when people have really low sensory thresholds, they notice and react to many, many things throughout the day. And when they have high sensory thresholds, they react to much less. Um, and that that sort of plays with the with the psychology part. And the the other continuum is called self-regulation. And so some people have a really passive way of regulating themselves. They let things happen and then they respond. And other people have an act of self-regulation, like they want certain things for their brain. And so like seekers, which we've talked about now, um, seekers have really high thresholds, but they want those thresholds to get met. And so they do extra things, you know, they put spice in their food and they add texture to their clothing and they hum and whistle. And, um, you know, kids at school will rub their hands along the bricks. They can't just walk down the hall. They have to touch 
the bricks because they want to hear that feel that vibratory sensation that happens. So they're constantly enhancing the sensory experience for themselves because their brains are geared to detect novelty. So they have to keep changing like what's going on. That's why they're pretty active in the environment at home, uh, at school, wherever they are, because novelty is what keeps the brain moving forward. But I also have to talk to families about um, like when you have a teenager that's a seeker, they might need to have the radio on or the TV on or their computer running something else while they're, you know, working on a project because um, the novelty part has to keep happening to keep them focused. You know, if they're writing a paper for the hundredth time, their brain is going to be searching for something new. And so having multiple inputs, sometimes it's helpful for kids like that. Um, avoiders have active self-regulation but it's because they have low thresholds. They do things to minimize, to keep uh, sensation away. They have very predictable routines. They pull down the shades, um, eat the same foods, have the same uh, brands of clothing. Um, they want to keep um, a predictable amount of sensory input coming in because their brains, they're detecting the novelty, but they're detecting it as potentially harmful. And so they get overwhelmed really fast and, um, want to preempt that by stopping things before they happen. So kids having meltdowns is a way to get out of having more sensory input coming their way. You know, sometimes we think about that as a seeker, but that is not seeking behavior because it's not pleasurable. Seekers have pleasure from all the sensation they get. And then the third is sensitivity. Those are people also that have low thresholds, but bless their hearts, they try to participate and they get overwhelmed by all of us. You know, they they try to get in the group and do things. And then it's like, you guys are too loud. You're bumping into me. There's just too much. And uh, so those are attempts um, yield a lot of sensory input, but then they reach their thresholds really fast. And so then they get kind of overwhelmed. So they, they tend to be more bossy or picky, um, maybe picky eaters. Um, I talk to a lot of parents. I think there should be like an international sock exchange for, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, cause you buy a six pack of socks and this sensor doesn't like them, you know, you put one pair on. So you got five that you can't use. So there should be like this international place where, you know, I need a sock that has a lot of pressure. I need a sock that's really loose. I need, you know, the kids are I can't wear those. I can feel the knots in the in the sock. You know, you're like, there's no knots in the sock. Trust me, if you lose a microscope, there would be knots in the sock. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sensors are very precise. They they like the details. They you know they're also more likely to be artists and have um, different ways of viewing music and and visual um, materials uh, because they see the world in much more uh, detailed relief than the rest of us. So that's why we all appreciate them because they provide that for us and we didn't notice it before they did it. You know, they provide new new ideas because of their precision and in, in noticing. Um, and then the fourth is called registration. Um, we call it bystanders, people that have really high thresholds, but unlike the seekers, they don't go out and get more. They're just pretty easy going. They miss a lot of cues. They're, um, they're, uh, um, pretty easy to be around. Uh, my husband is mostly a bystander and, you know, I get, I get my way a lot because he's like, whatever, 
no big deal, you know, but that's also what he says when he misses the turn on the highway and there's a 20 mile <laughs> exit, you know, no big deal. I'm like, yeah, except for the 40 miles we're going to have to drive now because you missed the exit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so bystanders, um, bystanders are easy. They're, they're universal companions, but they also, you know, they might not hear their kid calling them from the basement. They might not notice that the car, you know, is running out of gas. They might lose their keys. It might wear two different shoes to work. Um, all those sort of things happen because they're not detecting the details they fail to detect. So those are the four. And you know too much about our family now, because after our (laughs) Asha article, that's what it was about. That's how it opened was about our family because I realized after reading your book that, you know, Chris was a seeker. I was a censor. Connor's an avoider. Tucker's a bystander. And it all, they all fit so perfectly into the descriptions too. But it is so funny you say that about the sock with the oh. censors because we, we, last night we went to Target because I bought these socks that I bought the same brand obviously for years but I bought them in like the size bigger than I normally would. And it's not that they didn't fit. It's just, they fit differently. It was yes. a little and bit looser. Enough. And I was like, I can't, I will never wear these. I need to return them. So we went to Target <laughs> last night so I could return them. So it's just funny. I Perfect think, example. Yeah, absolutely. The, and this information is something like the entire world needs to know. The entire world yes. can benefit, not just our neurodivergent students. Yes. It got me thinking about what you had just mentioned, because you know your husband's profile. But if everybody could really understand on this level, I think that relationships would be. I, I think you're totally right. I got a, I got an email from a gentleman that said, I wouldn't have had to get divorced if I'd have known this, you know, it was just, yeah, it's that significant. It is that significant. It should be something like on match.com or one of those dating apps where it, it shows yeah. if you're a bystander or a seeker, you what go, I'm really great at and what's yeah, hard like, for I'll me a date with that person. <laughs> it's like the classic example of how this affects us because we are complete opposites you know he has a high threshold I have low he's active I'm passive we'll talk about in the morning hey I'll say what should we get for lunch we'll decide we're gonna get sushi and then we'll get in the car at 12 o'clock and then he's like so where should we go you know (laughs) and I'm like oh my god we had a plan and then he doesn't want to just drive to the restaurant he wants to he's like oh look at these new houses I have to show you the street let's go this way and then all of a sudden our we are like completely gone off track right but I know that about him and I can appreciate that about him now and I know that you know over time if we just like had a plan and always did the same thing that that wouldn't be very exciting for him or enough stimulation for him and that ties it does help you to understand each other without judgment. It's it's still the same behavior, but now you understand its genesis. And so you can make a joke about it. You can you can make it playful instead of instead of like instead of a conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is true for teachers as well. When if yes. they can identify these different patterns and what you had described in um really coming from that lens of the beyond how can we get this child to learn? Well, by providing some accommodations based on these different profiles. Or even where you place the child in an elementary school, where you place them in the class, you know, do you put, put the seeker in the place where all the traffic is going and put the low threshold kids 
in the corner where there's no door and you know they can have a little bit of privacy or they can turn their desk like just even just navigating the space um those little changes make a huge difference i for the first time as you know connor he's um in first grade now he is like classic avoider and I got to see his classroom for the first time and see where he sits. And then I came in and he's like right under the air conditioner. Oh, and I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. Like this is the, not where he would want to be, you know, because um, there was just a lot of, of, he doesn't like noises. He doesn't like wind, like any of that stuff. And it's just like such a simple change could make him so much more comfortable. And I think, I think you guys, that is one of the beauties of this knowledge that we've gained together is that it is a simple fix that people, you know, it's like, like if I, um, a friend of mine is a family therapist and, you know, she could say to the wife, you know, when your husband gets home, he's, he's a low threshold person. You know, he needs a little bit of time to gather himself. He's been with people all day. He's not trying to avoid you. He's trying to gather himself so he can pay attention to you. Just that little the wife can go, I can do that. You know, like I can give him 15 minutes. That gives me 15 minutes to, you know, get a drink ready or get a meal ready or change my clothes. Cause I'm just getting home, whatever it is. It changes the metric so that instead of it feeling like a personal attack, you don't want to talk to me. It's we're going to accommodate each other. And then we're going to come together and be happy. You like it changes everything really quickly. It's not like five months of therapy. It's not like, you know, delving deep into your history. It's like, no, just provide a quiet place. Gosh, that's so crazy that it's such a good point. It just reminds me of, we were just talking about how it's like the idea that when this is going to sound like it's really off tangent, but when someone someone says (laughs) You're with two seekers, (laughs) Jesse. Yeah, you're good yeah. to go, Jesse. are good. <laughs> when someone says something hurtful to you, it's not about you, right? It's a reflection right. of them. So it's the same thing, really, where it's like, they're not trying to bother you. Your seeker friends are not trying to bother you. They're not, it's not about you. It's about right. them and what they need. So just respecting right. the individual differences that we have. And I think having an easy language for it makes it, makes it, um, it neutralizes it all, you know. Is that like a weird thing for you to start seeing people just talk about? Like, well, like I know, you know that's, and avoiders are probably talked about the most. Yeah, but just to hear it. it's so interesting to me because, and I think this is where you talked about neurodivergent people. This is where we forget that they're the ones that teach us because we learned all these things by the extremes experiences that they have you know they're very sensitive or they're very seeking you know like it's a it's a it's way down the bell curve um and I started teaching when I first started doing research you know I was testing kids with autism kids with ADHD and people would come up to me and say my husband does that my neighbor does that my daughter does that you know like not people that were in special ed or, or in programming or anything you know and all of a sudden it dawned on me that This is about our humanity. It's about all of us. And once we can bridge that gap, then people with um, neurodiversity are just like us. You know, they're the same version of us. You know, they're having a more intense version of the same thing you're having, Jesse, or they're having the same, you know, 
they become us instead of them. And to me, that's sort of the big picture of it all is that it helps us accept each other for who we show up to be. You know, we don't have to fix you or change you. We don't have to make you better. You're perfect. And I'm going to understand your perfection so I can help guide you because, you know, certain kinds of perfection require certain kinds of context and certain kinds right. of activities. And, you know, like Connor is a perfect person and we have the responsibility as his caretakers, teachers, parents to provide the context for him to shine. Because in, in the world, we need avoiders as adults to do certain tasks that the rest of us would go crazy doing. You know, like being in a dark, I, I had a young man help me back in the day when they, when uh, rooms always had the AV room separately, you know, it was always this big dark room in the back. You didn't know what was back there. It was like magic, but he, that was his, that was his place. He had to come out. He, he wrote, he wrote me after a talk and we had a lot of talks about it where he would come out and meet the person who was giving the talk and make sure all the slides were ready and all that stuff. But he would go back into the safe space. So he could come out and be social for a few minutes, but he would go back there. And he felt so much relief at knowing it was okay to be like that. Instead of that, he was weird and odd and nerdy. All of a sudden, I talked about him not knowing I was. And, and he, felt, he felt such a sense of belonging then over the simple thing of saying some people just get too much really fast and they have to find a quiet place. And he was like, Oh my God, she's talking about me. You know, like, like he, wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't this oddball anymore, you know? And he talked about not having anything on the walls at home and pulling the shades down because it was just too much for him. And all the things that he'd done, he, he was really smart about adapting for himself, but he always thought it was because he was weird instead of, he just has a different pattern than everyone else. And it's okay. You know? That's right. Yeah. That he's not a broken neurotypical, that he's a perfectly fine neurodivergent individual. And once he's identifying those different characteristics, right. then it's like, oh, this relief. And he's um, in charge of it. It's not, it's not right. like doing it to him. He's the boss of it. I need to, I need to, I need to be a, a go in the other room for a minute. I'll be right back. You know, like that, that's okay. That we can say, Connor, it's okay to go in the bedroom for a few minutes. You know, he just has to regroup at grandma's house. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's Connor blowing up all the time. It's Connor collecting himself. You know, that's a whole different way to talk about a person. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me, maybe you could just give a few examples. You know, when we talk about thresholds, I feel like people get it for the most part. Pretty easy examples. And I think where people get really tripped up is thinking about what is passive regulation versus active. Maybe there are like a few examples you could give that would be. And it's really, you know, we talk, you know, here's the thing about human beings. There's a, there's a quote from an uh, English biologist. He said, if the brain was so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. <laughs> so I think that's, that it's complicated, you know, like, um, um, Passive self-regulation means that you're not taking charge of it. You know, you're not, seekers and avoiders take charge of it. They take charge to get it out of there or they take charge to get more. Um, the people on the passive end are more, um, they're more willing to just be present with whatever's going on. 
Um, and so in a way, that's why I always talk about sensors as people who want to participate, they try to participate. And then the context or the activity just kind of bowls them over, you know, and that, and so it doesn't look passive, but it's passive in the sense that they're not preempting the natural environment by ma making it more or making it less. Um, the other thing I need to say about that is uh, we did a project. Um, there was a period when a lot of researchers were um, taking kids with autism and making different groupings out of them. And they were using, um, Jesse, you and I've talked about this bad words, like negative words to describe these characteristics. And I, I, I'm, I'm offended by that. You know, I, I don't think there's any reason to talk about children or adults in bad, with bad words, like deficit or, you know, those kind of words. Right. So, um, we decided I had, you know, 1100 kids in this database uh, that we were going to do uh, an analysis, do these profile things, these latent profile analysis um, with the typical population. We, we added in kids with ADHD and autism, but we put, it was 1200 kids in this thing. And we did the same latent profile analysis and we got these five patterns and we, we were, we were going to name them either neutral or positive words. And um, everybody was there. So what we wanted to show was that like kids with autism have these extreme patterns, but there are kids in the typical population who also have those extreme patterns. So you can't say it's autism, you know, they're just in the extreme pattern. And so we were able to show that kids with ADHD and kids in the typical population have the same, you know, there's, there's more kids with autism that are extreme. There's more kids with ADHD that are extreme, but there's still other kids that have those same patterns that figured out what to do. So the thing that's really interesting is one of them was called, we, we ended up naming it mellow dot, 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 until. <laughs> so that's what bystanders are. You know, we talk about them being mellow and easygoing, but they have a moment. It's late. It's way down the timeline um, where they do react. And, and this is where people are getting messed up because what happens is they don't notice, they don't notice, they don't notice, but then it gets big, like the water flooding on the first floor of your house. Um, you know, a, Jesse, the sensor would notice the second drop and be down there turning it off. You know, the bystander notices it when they step into the water the next morning because it's flooded, right? Right. At that point, you have to act really big. So like my husband, Mr. Bystander, um, he's sort of, he he has, we call them until moments, you know, where like all of a sudden, all that stuff that he hadn't been noticing reaches a crescendo and he notices it. And then he's like an avoider. He looks like an avoider. He has really strong reactions. We call it, we call him Mitt because it's the opposite of Tim who's easygoing. And, <laughs> and so um, I want people to understand that there also are these moments you know, bystanders don't never notice, but their noticing is so delayed that it sometimes causes a problem. You know, like if you don't notice your kid screaming from the basement because he fell down and hurt himself, you know, there's going to be a bigger consequence because you notice it later than a parent that's a seeker or a parent that's a sensor, you know, that's going to be highly charged to notice it. So I don't want you to think that passive means you don't do anything. It's just the timeline of doing it is different. Sensors are there, you know, avoiders keep it from happening. Sensors let it happen and go, oh, oh, oh. And the bystanders, you know, their passivity is pa really passive until 
the the threat whatever their threshold is has been met and then their reaction is really big because it's an emergency and I'm, I'm using dramatic examples but you know what I mean like it just has there's a big response out of a person that you normally see as very easygoing and so I want people to understand that that's part of the continuum but we couldn't figure that out until we knew the first four you know like we didn't right. know about we couldn't talk about until until we understood the failure to notice you know like if we mushed it all together then we couldn't understand it but by pushing that aside and just noticing the not notice you know the failure to detect the easygoing the soft landing people we wouldn't have been able to figure out what that thing is that happens later and i interviewed people that were bystanders and they all had these until moments where their family was just flabbergasted by their response they didn't notice it you know you didn't notice but you know like uh, I have a friend Reed that's a high school teacher and he had two different shoes on at school and he didn't in fact he never noticed it his students noticed it you know but because he's a bystander he took a picture of it and he put it on Facebook because he thought it was hilarious whereas a censor would be like oh my god I gotta get you know, a sensor would never get to school with two shoes on, by the way, because they put their foot in the shoe and they'd be like, that is not the same shoe. Like their sensor behavior would make them notice. But, um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's all on a continuum, you know? So I think sometimes people want it, we have to learn it in little boxes to understand it, but then we have to step back and say, human beings have this whole range I'm sure you guys noticed that when one of you is hungry, your behavior of interest gets bigger. You know, your seeking behavior gets bigger. Your sensor behavior gets bigger when you're hungry because your physiological capacity is down. And so your tendency gets more noticeable. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring that up because I do think people get really thrown off by thinking, well, bystanders and sensors never react or they never go for the things they need or move away. And the example I always give because we're so opposite him being a seeker, me being a sensor is like when we're sitting on the couch watching TV and he gets hungry, he's like, I'm going to the store. I'm going to cook. What do you want? (laughs) He's on his feet. He's feeding himself. Me. I'm like, I got to watch three more episodes of the real housewives, even (laughs) though I'm going to be hangry and I know it. And then I'll feed myself and be like angry because I'll just eat whatever. Yeah. things yeah yeah and part of that is me seeking to get away from watching the real housewives <laughs> well, or yeah it's too uh, too much sameness you know <laughs> yeah, you gotta, exactly. you're, you're gotta get some novelty thrown yeah. in there not yeah. that he sits very long to watch tv but you know that's so funny because I, I i bet you there's a correlation with seekers and social media with it being so rapid and you just constant scroll it's like seeking for the next quick dopamine hit of laughter or shock or whatever gosh that makes me think like what do you think this is a big picture question what do you think the next like level of research will be able to show or or help us do like do you think that we will ever get to a place in our classrooms where we can support our kids needs like it feels like such a big mountain to climb you know and it seems like people's awareness isn't improving but they just really I just wonder, like, what's next? Yeah, I 
I think that universal design, which is a phrase they use in education a lot, I wish that therapists used it more, um, you know, setting things up so everyone can participate. I think that's becoming a more common thing. You know, I would, not that we want to talk about politics, but I would liken it to politics. You know, I, t I had an occasion to talk to 20-somethings and 30-somethings a lot. And, you know, their sense about uh, the future is so different than my generation or even your generation. And I think that um, I, I've come to start saying this, you guys, um, in my lifetime. So like, it feels every day like we're not making much progress. But then if I say things like in my lifetime, girls did not get to play sports. The 20 somethings are like, what? You know, like, literally girls didn't get to play sports at all you know, like you there was no NCAA there was no you know and it started with a dad that um worked in sports whose daughter wanted to play sports I mean that's how it started in my lifetime um kids didn't get to go to school if they had severe disabilities and now we're just horrified at the idea of it so I think sometimes we have to step back and say you know we should always be uncomfortable with where we are right now. Like, because when we get there, we see the next thing that needs to be done. But before we got there, we thought what we had was horrible and this would be the panacea. And then we get there and we're like, yeah, except now the kids are still segregated for this or that. You know, like when the, when they moved kids into public schools from institutions, they still put them in separate classrooms and the other kids never saw them, you know? And now we're horrified by that because the kids are in their neighborhood classrooms, you know? And so bit by bit, we start to see, you know, I think the next generation is going to be things like um, uh, people with disabilities um, working in regular businesses and law firms and, and stores and, um, you know, driving Ubers and all the things that everyone else does, you know, we're going to yeah, see. Absolutely people living in the community we're gonna you know there's a there's a neighborhood uh, grocery store here that has a policy they have a value about supporting everyone and they hire people with different kinds of disabilities they have a checkout guy that's deaf and he has a little um sign there that says you know you, you um I don't remember what the words are but basically telling you that he won't be able to understand what you're saying so you can see people getting in his line because they want to say hi to him. He's a really social guy. I'm so proud of that grocery store because five years ago, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have hired a deaf guy to work in a grocery checkout line where everybody's chatting and he's still socializing with everyone just in a different way. And the more we have those experiences, the more it becomes not the other. It just becomes the guy at the grocery store or the, the guy that's, you know, stocking the shelves or the guy that's you know, the law clerk or whatever it is. I think that the next thing is that our acceptance of otherness is going to be easier to do. And uh, we're going to laugh about people being quirky instead of segregating them because they are. We're going to, you know, all of us could be in the disability group if the culture had picked other things to be icky. You know, like... <laughs> Like there's something yeah. about me, there's something about all of us that that I could be in the other group if you pick those variables. They just didn't happen to pick them for me. So I think that in the next generation, we're going to have more of the children having had experiences with people that are different. And so 
they'll be in employment situations where they'll hire them because they it was their kid they went to college with or the kid they went to grade school with. Um, I remember, you know, my daughter who's in her 40s now, she, um, you know, back then their public law 94142 had just started, you know, and the ki- there were kids who were blind in a classroom in her school. She came home one day and she said, mom, um, teach, you know, let me eat how Brianna eats, which is a little girl that was blind in her school. So she put a towel around her head. Um, she said, tell me what o'clock my food is, mom. And so I told her that's what they did with Brianna every day. And so at the end of the meal, she saw that she shot her food all, I mean, it was a mess all over. And she took the towel off. She goes, mom, I made a mess. I said, yes, you did. She goes, how come you didn't teach me this? Brianna already knows how to do it. Like she didn't (laughs) see that it was because she had a disability. It was that I had, of course, other five-year-olds already know this and I don't know it. Why, why she didn't, she didn't detect it as a deficit in Brianna. And, and I think the more that children have those experiences, the less segregation there's going to be. And I just think that sensory processing knowledge is a way an easy way to make accommodations for people that are kind and supportive and um, saying sort of, I see you, I see your humanity. I see who you are and it's okay. It's okay. You need to go to the other room. You know, it's okay. You don't like potatoes that grandma makes with the lumps in them. You know, it's okay. Just put the lumps aside instead of Grandma's going to be mad if you don't eat her potatoes. You know, can you imagine all the stuff we lay at children's feet? That's, uh, that's, that's the world that we, that's, that's the world I want to live in right there. And I think that exactly. for the revolution to happen, evolution has to take place. And that's where we're at. We are, and you're doing such an amazing job on that and, uh, and really helping out the world and moving forward. I think that like occupational therapy and speech therapy, is that life curriculum that's paving the way for, you know, uh, a purposeful life, a harmonious life, a peaceful life, a happy life. No matter what, no No matter matter what what. characteristics are, exactly. They are like, absolutely. I ask people, do you want to have all you's in the world? (laughs) I don't want to have all me's in the world. (laughs) Exactly. Really irritating. (laughs) That would be a very boring world if there was, all of just one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, when you sort of narrow it down to what is true, like people don't really want that, but they, they, I don't know, people, I think always want to have an other to feel better about themselves. And I want them to feel better no matter who the others are. Absolutely. I had a student who had told me that exact word that you had mentioned earlier. He had, he said, man, I, I just am so quirky. And I said, the things that make you quirky are the things that make you unique, different, and awesome. And that's uh, what makes you shine. And so, right. yeah. In my generation, I think about uh, women like Tina Turner and Oprah Winfrey. And, um, you know, if they had followed what everyone told them to do, no one would know who they were. You know, it's because, you know, Oprah didn't fit the the pattern of, broadcaster in that time period I mean and she just she just kept going you know Tina Turner was like this larger than life she she was she and uh um Ike were in St. Louis they did my teen town that's what they called the 
like the dances they had for kids that weren't old enough to go out. And um, yeah, so I, I know Tina Turner when she was like a little young woman trying to make her way. And so I think about like her letting herself be herself. Like I, w- I want to know who supported her to do that and who made it possible for her to believe in herself the way you said about that young man. You're awesome because of that. Don't yeah. act like, don't, don't take that away from us. That's what makes you the best thing ever. Like kids need to hear that every day. They do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, I'm just taking it all in. Yeah. So great. <laughs> Thank you so much for oh. spending this time with us. We just so I'm appreciate it. I'm so glad you invited us. me. So you glad. have had so much knowledge and the listeners and viewers are going to just love this. And so we thank you so much for coming on. Your work has is cha- has changed the world and will continue. So um, we really do appreciate you um, joining us on this episode. Um, if there were parents or therapists that are to want to hunt you down, where can they find you? At the University of Missouri in the Department of the Occupational Therapy Program. There we go. And we can link to your book too, yeah. which is such okay. a great read for any parent or professional. We'll put too. all of the uh, links and and all of that good stuff in the show notes. Um, and we appreciate you coming on. And okay. you have anything else, Jesse? No. That's okay. Fine. Thank you guys for tuning in. Until next time, be awesome and be legendary. Okay. Thanks, we Wayne. can do that. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.